Hello, everybody. It's Richard Harris and Scott Lees back for another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. We are joined today by um, a really, really good person, good friend, someone I've gotten to know over the years. Um, currently, he's at, a, he's at a company called Bevy, but he's also been at MuleSoft, Salesforce. Uh, he was a Ranger sniper team leader um, in the military. So Stephen Brody, if you haven't figured it out, Stephen, thank you for coming on the show. And, and most importantly, thank you for your service. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I apologize ahead of time. I'm bad at surfing and sales. Uh, so <laughs> I, I don't know about the, uh, I don't know about the surfing part, but I agree you're bad at sales. <laughs> there we go. Uh, and then what I didn't know, because I know we have a first question, but what I didn't know and I want to hear about is that and, you know, literally in the last century, you were a level four, level four fry technician at In-N-Out Burger. Yes, which is, which is actually an important caveat. I'm glad you made that. Most In-N-Out fry technicians are level three. I was a level four. What does and that mean? How do you it, get there? Level four is the pay grade. Uh, you get there by, well, In-N-Out said they hired me for my smile, so I no longer trust them. Um, <laughs> and frankly, like in and out was a lot harder than going to war five times in Ranger Regiment. And frankly, I don't think I've had as difficult of a job since. Um, their, their emphasis on putting the customer first, I think, is a great sort of catalyst for creating future salespeople. Uh, the first time some guy asked me to dig through the trash for two hours to find his retainer, you know, and, and gave me a $10 oh, when I, when I finally found it was the first time I realized that uh, a life in the service industry was not going to work for me. And maybe I should consider some other service. Um, but truthfully, like I loved in and out. I only stopped working at in and out because when I was, a senior in high school, my manager called me aside and he said to me like, Hey, Steven, look outside. And he was like pointing at some car. I was like, what, what am I looking at? He's like, you see that Mustang over there? I was like, yeah, I see your Mustang. He's like, look, man, I think you got a future in fries. <laughs> he's like, he's like, I know you're going to college, but like you could be, you have like, you know, salad table chef, like manager potential here. Like this is like this is like Ben Affleck boiler room kind of moment. Yeah, the keys except the In and Out Burger version. Yeah, he's like, look, man, screw college, like Mustang. So anyhow, I quit the next day, um, <laughs> and like he got the work. he got the last laugh because In and Out does profit sharing, and he now runs the largest single district of restaurants, and I'm pretty oh. sure the guy's making like. A million dollars a year, so. Oh my gosh! He saw yeah. you as competition. He saw you as the competition, and he's like, "I got to get this guy out of here." Maybe I got a big goal. I, I highly doubt it. I think I think he there was a, and this is similar in sales. Like in and out, and in sales, your number one inhibitor to your ability to scale is your ability to hire great people. And I think that's the number one lesson I actually took away from MuleSoft. I don't think MuleSoft would have agreed to let Salesforce acquire them had they been able to hire the volume of AEs that they needed to hit their growth goals and still maintain the hiring bar that they had. 
Salesforce. What, can you can you talk can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like what what held you back from from hiring in mass like that? Honestly, MuleSoft outgrew its ability to source top of funnel talent at the volume that it needed given its talent conversion rates to hit that hiring goal without an like an even bigger talent brand behind it. <clears throat> was it was it geographical? Was it comp based? Was it uh, internal like resources constrained? No. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just trying yeah, to think. I should, I should back up. So first of all, I think MuleSoft had the best talent team I've ever worked with, ever. And tell everybody what MuleSoft did, it does by the way, real quick for context. Yeah, MuleSoft is a company that helps other companies connect all their disparate systems using like API led connectivity. It's an integration company but don't tell them I said that. Um, it's too late it's an, now. It's, it's an amazing company. They were acquired by Salesforce after, so first they IPO'd. It was like one of the most successful IPOs of that year. And then they were acquired by Salesforce for, for more than $6 billion. It was one of the biggest acquisitions of the past 20 years. I think Qualtrics and GitHub were the only bigger ones, if I'm remembering correctly. But just to back up, I actually had been running the America's Inside Sales Org and Account Development Orgs. And I got asked to stand up business operations with the sort of specific focus of turning the talent team into a sales team. And the reason for doing that was MuleSoft had an unbelievably high bar for the caliber of people that they brought in and the conversion rates were really low at the top of the funnel and they were really low throughout the rest of the funnel so our thought process was if we can train the sales or sorry the talent organization to operate more like a sales team we can drive more top of the funnel talent and actually hit our hiring goals and the truth is we were making a ton of like really amazing progress but the growth goals once you're a three billion dollar publicly traded company in order to hit the sales goals of just continuing to drive that kind of outsized growth were really really high and i think that was the key catalyst in considering whether or not an acquisition made yeah sense. yeah yeah and what are you and what are you working on now tell, tell everybody about the not just the product but like what's the sale like what's the is it complex? Is it long sales cycle? Big price point? Yeah. What is, so, what is it? So Bevy underpins the communities of companies like Salesforce, Slack, Atlassian, Adobe. And what that dictates is that the sales cycles are always going to be longer than we want them to be. Um, they're going to be multi-constituent. And currently, I, it's everyone's full cycle sort of field sales reps, which started out of necessity and probably will change in the near future, but has been an interesting experiment for me and actually has been working out pretty well. So last year, we tripled revenue year over year. Um, we 
had a lot of success, a lot of traction, and we're actually driving a very highly targeted account-based focus. So we so have- If you're full field-based, does that mean you've had to pivot everybody into, you know, work from home inside sales based yeah. now? Yeah. So I'm like- well, let's, 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 get in, let's get into that. Tell, tell people kind of how you've made that transition, and I'm sure it's been pretty fast. And, and how's it going? I, I've gotten that exact question basically three yeah. or four times in the last week. Like I got an outside sales org. I need to convert them to inside sales. Help me out. So no better man than you to, you know, um, drop some knowledge on everybody and, and give some advice on how to do that. Yeah. So, you know, special operations, ironically, in a lot of ways is very sort of um, intentionally informal, but the one formality that they kept in place were morning formations just to make sure everyone was showing up to work happy healthy engaged and ready for the day and you know when you're working in sniper section in particular that's actually a specialty platoon so you're not attached or you're not part of like the typical line platoons so you're kind of like this very even smaller subset of the broader organization and there's very loose accountability i say all that because i think Working from home sucks. Like, really sucks. And <laughs> honestly, this, this, this is, this is a different perspective than a lot of people have right now who are, who are doing this for the first time. Yeah. What I would say is it, it sucks because it's hard to context switch when your dog wanders into the room. I don't have kids. Um, so it's, it sucks less for me, I imagine, or maybe it sucks more for me because I don't have kids depending on your opinion. But I think the point I was trying to get to, and I apologize for failing to get to it quickly is adding a daily standup that's very unstructured at the beginning of every day has been the single biggest sort of change that we've made. And I now realize we probably should have had it anyways. But I've both created a, a daily standup and I've actually assigned out people to own each day. And what that's done is created an added layer of accountability and a level of intentionality with it that allows it to be unstructured from my perspective, but create value from the reps. So is that, is that like Scott owns Wednesday, Richard owns Thursday, Steve owns Friday type thing? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, like each day can be both topical or unstructured. Like there is no rules. And, you know, when I was running the America's Inside Sales Org at MuleSoft, we had people in six cities. And for our meetings, what was actually critically important, and I'm glad I learned that lesson then, was facilitating like geographically dispersed video meetings which you know you have to actually call on people you have to put people in gallery mode and frankly like actually as a leader you kind of have to call out when people clearly aren't paying attention yeah yeah you know, outside of like your kid stumbles in and grabs your leg or whatever like hey like jeff like what do you think you know i can see like you're opening your lap we, we had like zoom rooms i would actually like straight up we had a rule where it was laptops down you can't do that 
when people are working from home, obviously. But I mean, like this all makes me sound like a prick now that I'm saying it out loud. But I would I would call out people for opening their laptops. No, I'm right there with you. I had a, a no laptop. Richard, you're on mute. I had a no no laptop rule, no cell phone rule during meetings and things like that. Put it all put it all away. And and specifically when I have done trainings um, for I'd say like mid size to large size groups, like I always try to find the person who's sort of daydreaming and not paying attention. I'd specifically call on them to snap back to, you know, snap back to reality, snap back to life or whatever. Oh. Yeah. Go ahead, Rich. You were on mute earlier, Richard. Yeah, no, I was. I was going to say I've seen Scott do that, and and he's a master at it. Um, I think I still feel guilty for doing it when, in fact, I shouldn't, and I and I don't anymore. But it's it's really important. It's it's a message, right? And and you know, in fairness, the other person should feel more guilty than I do, you know, because they're distracting all of us. Right? They're taking away from the rest of us because we all see it. So it's, it's interesting. Um, so, um, what have been you know? So how big is Ben now? Just so we have some context. Yeah, so Bevy's 35 people, there's uh, five AEs, and myself, I have a head of sales operations and effectiveness who's amazing. I wish I had hired her sooner. We probably would have quadrupled or quintupled revenue. How, how, how long did you wait to hire that person? Too long, uh, like a year. Define a year, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm on record, I don't remember whose show it was, but... Uh, Somebody asked me, like, who's the first, what's the first hire you make when you become a VP of sales? And I'm on record like a year and a half, two years ago, is always a head of sales operations. Always. First one, hire. First hire that I make. 100% agree. And actually, I would have had a lot less gray hair. We would have had a much more codified process. And, you know, I've worked with her before, so I know her strengths yeah. are my weakness. But instead of getting yeah. an inch deep and a mile wide, I would have gotten a mile deep on the three most important things and we would have knocked them out of the yeah. park. And it's literally the single most important hire period. In fact, I would have rather hired her than an AE because I could have gone and done some sales myself. Yep. yep. So, yeah. That I'm, glad, I'm glad you hired was amazing too. <laughs> I'm glad you're on the same page as me now with this uh, first first hire being the, the head of head of sales ops. I've, I've been encouraging um, all the companies that I talk to and advise and, and their new heads of sales and stuff like really put in the time and invest in this, get it right. Don't hire even like a real junior person, hire somebody really strong, preferably somebody that is a known commodity like you did. You hired somebody you used to work with before. Makes all the difference in the world, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so, so my philosophical sort of stance on sales is if you have, an A plus process and only hire A plus people. And this is, I think where Scott, you and I disagree because you believe in, I, if I'm misquoting you, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think you, you've said at some point something about you can hire B players. I think if you have an A, a plus sales process, only hire A plus people and you have the ability to, to fill your talent funnel and get enough people in, then that's when like 10 X results happen. If you have an A plus process and B people, I actually think you can have A minus results. If you have an A plus people and a C process, you're gonna have C C plus results. I'm trying to. There's a lot of letters and grades. That's a complicated numbers, math num equation. Num numbers there. I'm, I'm not that smart, Steve. Um, I don't. It's Scott not that I just hire a sales operations person for this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> that's I have somebody here to do math for me. Um, I don't think that I disagree with you. I just think that. 
there's a lot of cases where people in head of sales roles aren't given the freedom and flexibility and trust and the time necessary to make sure that that we are only hiring a plus people so I, also, I, I i feel like i can put an a plus process into place and you know despite every argument that i make about investing in tools or get the compensation right or treat your people right like there have been times where i can't get an a plus person and so i've had to take c and d players and turn them into b plus a minus and and do the best i can um, so I, I, I don't think, think we totally disagree. No, so I, this is where I, because I've, I've been a part of this with Scott, and I've seen him do it numerous times, is that he can take that B player and turn them into an A-plus player. He knows how to do that. He knows how to motivate people in a very different way. Um, so I, I think that Scott totally can do that, but he's also got, he's wired to get the best out of people differently than a lot of traditional sales leaders are. Scott's not your traditional sales leader, right? Um, you know, I think, I think Stephen, you know, you tell me if I'm wrong, you know, based on your background and, and where you came from, you know, you, you kind of had to, you, know, you sort of did your job. You, know, you show up and you do your job. And I would assume a lot of that has come from the military and, and to the excellence you had to be, you know, you're, for those who don't know, Stephen is, I assume you're still registered as a sniper. He's a lethal weapon um, as, as far as I know. But, you know, you can't be anything but an A-plus player there. There's no other, there's no other option for you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think here's here's where I think the nuance matters. Because maybe we're saying the same thing, or maybe not. But first, I appreciate the compliment. I haven't got, got long range, done any long-range marksmanship in six years. I don't think I can hit the broadside of a barn right now. Well, let's hope you don't have to. Yeah, um, <laughs> which, which is, I'll, I'll, maybe I'm an outlier, but shooting guns isn't fun for me. It, I associate it with work still. Um, it's the same reason I ride a bike instead of run. My first squad leader was an ultra marathoner and would punish us by taking us on unannounced 10 and 20 mile runs. Cool. So running uh, group workouts where you're being told what to do and shooting guns always associated with like the unfun parts of work. But, but here's what I'd say, because Richard, you hit on something important. I think the nuance here that matters is I define an A player based on their upside, like their ceiling and not their floor. I think the difference between great sales leaders and mediocre sales leaders is the ability to identify someone with a ton of upside and get them to a place where they can actually realize that. I think that the underpriced asset approach to sales hiring is the like, absolute best approach if you find someone who's coachable who has significantly less experience than someone else in the market and is therefore underpriced because there's an over rotation towards experience and expertise versus upside you're far more likely to succeed and actually i look at the fact that i was the guy who won our first internal sniper competition when i got to the team and I look at the fact that when I joined Sniper Section, I was literally the worst by far because I grew up in San Francisco. I had never, even in three and a half years at that point of being in Ranger Regiment, I had never even looked down the scope of a sniper rifle. Hmm. And actually that was the biggest advantage I had because all I did was focus on fundamentals, body position, yeah. breathing, 
All about the basics. Yeah. All like, I, I, all, that's all I could do. And I, all yeah. these kids from Alabama who were sitting in tree stands for 20 years, like came on with a much higher floor than me and were kicking my ass. But I started running laps around them because all I did was listen to what I was told and actually try to incorporate that into yeah. my studio. Okay. You didn't have to unlearn bad habits. Yeah. yeah. So, so much truth in that, in that story as it pertains to people getting into sales for the first time and the types of folks that you want to hire and how you can coach them. And that, uh, that really resonates. I hope everybody's paying attention to that. Hey, Scott, uh, so I've got, I got a question for you on that, Stephen. Hopefully my audio is better. Um, you know, we all hear a lot, particularly in sales, particularly in the startup world and SaaS, where we all swim, um, you know, you know, hire a veteran, hire a veteran. And, and there's, it's interesting because it often feels like we should do this altruistically, which is great. And I think we should. But what I think a lot of people don't know, particularly people who have never been in the military, you know, we can sort of see the common denominator of, okay, they went to boot camp, they learned how to march, they can follow a process, those kinds of things. What are the things that people who are in leadership and recruiting positions don't know about the value of bringing in someone from military background, right? Um, Aside from the process side, is there something else that's like, oh, here's what you guys don't know? Yeah. So first I'd start by saying, don't just hire a veteran altruistically. And not all veterans are created equal. And some, like, frankly, fucking suck. And I would never hire them. And the reason I say that is, like, saying hire a veteran in many ways is like saying hire a teacher or don't hire a teacher. Like there's a million and a half people in the military in the United States. It's, I'm probably even getting that number wrong. I think it's more if you start incorporating the National Guard. That, the fact of the matter is that is such a broad swath of the country. And it's actually not all that diverse. It's over-rotated on diversity on some fronts and it's totally under-rotated on some other. What does over-rotation, under-rotation mean? Like that's a word I don't even get. It's over-representative of certain groups of people, like, and it's underrepresentative of others. So special operations, and this is not a good thing about it, but it's like, like historically the whitest part of the military, it has the highest density of people with like some higher level of education. And it tends to be people who come from middle class families versus lower class. Um, the military looks very representatively different. Um, the, the good news is that the special operations community is becoming a lot more representative of America. Um, the bad news is that when people from really like prestigious units and who are true A players emerge from the military, like pilots, special operations folks, nukes, people who had to go through a really challenging pipeline to get into their position, typically, they set the bar that all veterans are created equal. And they're just not. And the reality is basic training is not that hard. Like airborne school is not that hard. Ranger indoctrination program was literally the worst eight weeks of my life. I have serious PTSD about that, and I have no PTSD about going to war five times. So, like, 
I think that the difference is when you go and identify veterans, the thing to look for if you're a recruiter is have they been specially selected? Like how, and, and how are you defining specially selected? So, so you're, you're advising me as I evaluate um, ex-military talent in sales in particular, um, help, help, help me out, right? What, what does specially selected mean in your context? So I'll, I'll answer that question and I'll first caveat it. One, like go ask a veteran who comes from a specially selected unit, whether it's special operations, a pilot, whatever, to assess a potential veteran candidate because they're going to give you an honest assessment of who the hell this person is, what the hell their resume means, what the reputation of their unit was. Um, second, specially selected means what was the process to go from just like being in the military to being in that particular unit doing that specific job. So specially selected could mean Army Special Operations, it could mean Navy SEAL, it could mean you're a pilot, it could mean you are part of uh, your nuclear technician on a submarine, it could mean you're in psychological operations, it could mean a variety of different things, but if you ask them what the training above and beyond just the basic host, basic training, training path looks like, was there a third or fourth selection that they had to complete? So number one is always gonna be basic training. Number two is gonna be job specific. Number three might be like, I went to airborne school. And number four is like, I went through ranger indoctrination program. Number five is like, I had to go to ranger school. Number six is like, I had to go to sniper school. Number seven is you go to special operations target interdiction school. Like the number of selections you had to go through in order to ultimately end up in the job you were in, in the unit you're in, is most indicative of how challenging it is and therefore most likely to dictate that someone like made it through an incredibly challenging candidate pipeline process. Got it. So how do Got you, it. I want to flip it on the other side. Let's say you are a veteran, right? Um, and maybe, maybe you didn't get to do that level of specialty, but you do want to go into sales. How do you show sales leaders who don't, who've never, you know, not every sales leader, unfortunately, yet has heard this podcast. How do you show your ability to be in sales? So let's flip it on the other side, right? And, and granted, I, I get the reverse engineering from if someone was in special ops or, or a specified training, as you said. But what if you're not? What if you are, you know, mm -hmm. someone who, you know, maybe you were an infantryman or you got promoted to sergeant or something and you, maybe you led a team, right? And that's kind of as far as you went. How do they bring that out in their interview process, their resume, that kind of stuff to, to speak in the sales mind? So, you know, for early career salespeople, I always need to see some way where I can tangibly, qualitatively or quantitatively validate that they have a true passion for sales. And that can look at a variety of different ways based on whether or not you actually have been in sales. So first of all, like the easy answer is the best way to prove you're a good salesperson is be really good at selling yourself. Got it. But like it, when you like scratch beneath the surface there, if you haven't been in a sales role, it's hard to demonstrate that you have a passion for sales. Well, how about you actually like 
go and read sales books. And when you talk about them, instead of just dropping the title, like know that someone like Scott or yourself or me is going to probably have read it and is going to push you on it. Cause I will pull open my Evernote, which downloads my Kindle notes. And I'm going to be like, Oh, well, what did you think about chapter three where they talk about the idea of a customer centric buying process? Like if you have an answer there, I don't care if you've sold anything, like you're showing a passion for sales. Now, if you layer on top of that, a demonstrated coachability and showing like a track record of achievement where you're like a top 5% person somehow. And it's an early career sales role. I don't really care if you've sold or not. I do over rotate on have you actually sold because it's easier to identify passion for sales. How, what about, what about people who are in recruiting in the military? as they use it as an example of their um, early salesmanship. Like they never had a sale, a, a like regular sales job before for mm-hmm. software or tech or whatever, but they, they come out and they're like, you know, here's what I can point to. I was recruiting in the military. I did this, that, and the other. I went to different communities. Is that, is that something from your perspective that you'd be like, okay, I'll give you that. And, and if, if you're, on my side of the fence, not a military background, but evaluating talent like that, what level of, of credence or cred should I give um, to that specific type of, of person? If so, any. Uh, the, the, one of the, uh, this is like, a, this is a totally loaded question because I know no, somebody, I have somebody specifically in mind. And so I, I have someone in mind too, because the last great hire I think I made, who's now one of the top, commercial mid-market AEs and MuleSoft was a recruiter previously. Um, recruiter from the military or just no, a recruiter in general? No, but, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll go a level deeper. One of the best salespeople I've worked with who's on my team now was a Mormon who, where your job when you're on a mission is to basically try to recruit people into, you know, totally. the yeah. Latter-day Saints church. Here's the interesting thing about that. Like I literally had this conversation the other day where I was like trying to get someone to think about triaging which accounts to focus on. And I was like, are you selling Bibles or are you selling religion? And the reality is this is someone who's literally sold religion. You know, obviously as a salesperson, you want to find the people who are looking to buy Bibles, not have to sell religion in the first place because those are going to be longer sales cycles. They're evangelical. So if you look at army recruiters, and it's a really great question. They're probably the only people outside of Jehovah's Witnesses and people from the Latter-day Saints Church who have more doors slammed in their face than anyone out there. And they yeah. serve and surface inbound and outbound demand. Yeah. So I'd hire one in a heartbeat. Confirmation. So I, 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 hired, I hired one um, about three years ago uh, when I was at Qualia. And... Uh, he turned out to be fantastic. Um, done done really well, and and I learned a lot from him actually. So uh, that's my data point of one that I can think of. But I, I got I got the one right. Well, the interesting piece too is most people do recruiting later in their career in the military and actually start in a different job. So they actually then go through another pipeline process. And recruiting schools 
challenging. That's really fascinating. Thanks, thanks for letting us pivot and dive into to the military aspect because I've always wondered about it and um, it definitely I picked up about six different things that I will turn people on to aside from just going and listen to Stephen. Um, so thank you very much for that. What um, I know, you know we're going to talk about this again, but we didn't. But I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to, you know, for you to share kind of what you've been through. Right, it's uh, March twenty fifth, I think, uh, two thousand twenty, and we've all been surviving this indoor situation. But but Stephen, tell us what's been going on with you. Uh, I mean, outside of, you know, like I'm thirty five. When I hit thirty, I started questioning whether or not I really was as extroverted as I thought. You're thirty-five. You don't look thirty-five. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's the beard. I I I shaved my beard off, and he stole it. <laughs> I, I I look like a child, and he looks old now. I was saying that the H in work from home is for Haggard, and <laughs> <laughs> and when you stop shaving, you're really embodying the work from home spirit. So I I was saying like I thought I was like more introverted as I got older. I've realized I I don't get a ton of energy. Um, unless I'm engaging with people. So it's been tough. Um, I, it was particularly hard because three weeks ago, or a little longer than that now, I woke up one night in the middle of the night and thought I was having a panic attack, but wasn't sure because I've never actually had a panic attack before. And I tried like meditating and nothing was working. It was really hard to breathe. And I didn't really think anything of it. Ended up going back to sleep. And the next day I basically woke up and had the 104 degree temperature. So I went over to UCSF and by the way, if you if you work for an insurance company, turn this off right now in the next five minutes. Uh, I sat in a plastic tent. They swabbed me three times. This is before they had the capacity to really run any tests. So I don't know if this is actually true, um, but I, I have a high degree of confidence that I had, coronavirus because I had 104 degree temperature for the next three days. It was the best diet I've ever been on. I lost like 20 pounds in water weight. Uh, I merged looking shredded. I rapidly destroyed that by working at home and being stagnant. And uh, it's been eye-opening. It like, like I've, I've recently gotten into cave diving and technical diving. And what's interesting about cave diving and technical diving and, and actually even getting sick is it's a really good reminder that life is fickle, fleeting, and fast. And you really start valuing your health. You know, if yeah. you, you take the wrong mix when you're, you know, 250 feet down, or if you run out of air in a cave, like you're dead. And I feel like we as human beings have just been blunted and really sort of sheltered from the idea that like people die and health is fleeting. And it hasn't been really since I've gone to war that that's been so ever present. It's been interesting watching other people adjust to it. Yeah. I can relate to that a, a ton from all of my health challenges. <clears throat> um, you know, in my youth, I mean, I've been on some level dealing with my mortality very consistently for 20 years now and now what's happened is i'm watching all of my friends and family on the whole fucking planet slowly start to come around and, and deal with this I, I have a neighbor who's been 
really irritating me because they've not been paying attention to all this stuff for the last month or so. And just earlier today, they texted, she texted my wife and was like, I'm freaking the fuck out. Like people are coming around to this and it's, it's intense for people who are, are not, not used to it. You know, I don't know how much you, you thought about that, if at all, in your military service, you certainly can't think about it when you're cave diving, but maybe beforehand, you're very conscious of like, this, I, this is very technical, I got to get this right and whatnot. So what, what have you, what have you noticed in the, in the response of those around you? Uh, I appreciate you sharing the fact that, you know, you, you think that you had coronavirus, you're the first person that I know on a personal level. Um, you know, who's come out and said that, um, what do you, what, do, what have you noticed? What's your, what's your experience right now? You know, the, the first thing that hit me was how amazing the team I work with is because, you know, like, I feel like your goal as a sales leader is to make yourself obsolete. And when you're down for, totally. for a week, you're pretty obsolete. And the team just stepped up and, you know, an AE literally is a leader of an account team, right? I hate the like quarterback adage, but like the quarterback's the leader of the team. An AE is a quarterback and an account team. The AEs I hire, I'm always looking for like leadership potential or leadership experience. I actually over-rotate on leadership experience over sales experience because I believe sales can be taught. And they just made massive strides in terms of, really helping us pivot and adjust. And I was down for the count right before it really got bad. And right as we were starting to make that pivot. The second thing that stood out to me, my wife had stage four cancer. And that was like over the past couple of years. And she's just now been like clean for like six months or something. And what's interesting is she went through the same sort of come to terms with mortality struggles that I had my first couple of deployments where I'd get back and actually like, I didn't have PTSD from going to war. I was just really angry that people like gave a shit about small things. It like really deeply bothered me. I was like, look, your buddy's not gonna get shot in the face. Like your, no. kid, your kids are like still alive and healthy. Like life is a lot more terribly black and white and dark and you haven't even looked to see that there is a pit let alone gone down into it and i had to actually personally work to develop a lot more patience and empathy with people because i was frankly really bad at letting that like chip be on my shoulder all the time it's, what's interesting is when she first got sick she kind of had that and embodied it too. And, you know, as any good husband knows, I made a point to try not to point that out as much as possible or tell her, you know, that I like, all I could do was empathize and say, like, I totally hear you. I've been there before. And I think it actually brought us a lot closer together because she had a relatively easy life before that. And even growing up, I think like, I had already dealt with a lot more adversity. And I think that what's been interesting, and she talked about this the other day, she's like, it feels like the world is like just now like tiptoeing over to that pit and realizing that there's even a pit there. And 
you know, like, this is so easy. This is so easy. Like, we can't go and hug our parents, but like, we're still alive and happy and healthy. Yeah. And we've got internet and Netflix and Zoom, right? Yeah. And, all, and, all the, and all these things. It could be, could be a lot worse. One of the things that crisis and trauma, you know, provides you is, is with perspective, you know, and uh, hopefully, hopefully one of the benefits of this horrific experience for everybody is that everybody gets a little bit more perspective on what matters and what, what doesn't matter. And, you know, it's, it's not to say that you shouldn't care about hitting your quota, but it's like, you know, part of me is like who fucking cares about hitting your quota right now <laughs> you know um so the perspective is, is important and, and you you do start to you do start to realize like the limited number of opportunities you know that we all have and if you've had the rug pulled out from under you before you know you don't take it for granted and, you, and you, there's a there's a, a a motor inside of you if you will that it revs at a different engine level sometimes because you know, I don't know when I'm going to feel horrible again and not be able to do anything. So I want to get things done. There's a sense of urgency I have along with the, the appreciation. And I'm, I'm optimistic at least that, um, you know, a lot more people will, will gain similar type of perspective. You know? I think I've, I've been seeing I think a couple of people have written about it, but I've even experienced is that in general, people are actually trying to be nicer. They're making a their effort to be honest and to Thank person at the grocery store. Hey, thanks for working. Or, you know, a thirty person, you know, take a little bit extra because those people in the service you need it. I'm hoping it sticks, right? I, I really do hope that the niceness sticks and that sort of moment of exhale that we have right now um, continues. I when Sky did last surf and sales, we I, one of the things I talked about talking with him, that experience was really remembering to relish the in-between conversation. It's not what happens at each session of any conversation in the middle of everything, right? And um, this feels like a very long in-between conversation what's happening in the world. And I hope that people walk away with that piece. Um, I have a total another off-topic question, so I'm going to say, um, only because it's relevant to Scott and his kid. Uh, as a sniper, as someone who went to that, did you get any training on how to shoot a Bonero? Because Scott just got his kids bows and arrows, and maybe you could give him a tip or two to to give to Caleb and Braden. Uh, this is this is, this is uh, they're in the archery section of their gym class at homeschool. That's what it is. Wow. Yeah. First of all, I wish I had had that. Um, <laughs> I grew up in San Francisco, though. Actually, Golden Gate Park has an archery range. Fun fact: in Buffalo's. Um, so no, not only do I not have any experience, but ironically, just the other day, my buddy invited me to go bow hunting with him. And I was like, can I bring a rifle? I, otherwise, I am going to die because I'm going to have to get close enough to something to shoot it with a bow. Um, I, I love the idea of hunting. I grew up in San Francisco, though, and had a single mom. So, you know, the first time I learned how to clean an animal was doing training so I'm like I'm just totally lost in the sauce and you know it is what it is I I wish I was uh, hey let's make no mistake here okay I, I'm pretty this is like the most country thing that I've probably ever done <laughs> with my, 
my king. Okay. I'm extremely useless at all sort of things, hunting and whatnot, but, um, spent some time, spent some time in, in Newcastle over, uh, over the Christmas break. And my, my buddy has got this big piece of property and he had this bow and arrow and bale of hay and a target on it and everything. And, and so they spent a bunch of time over new year's just firing away on that thing. And, yeah. Uh, lock locked down here and if, if you know my kids who are 12 and 10 year old boys with a truckload of energy like I got to find some way to you know do this and if I'm go down a negative path and 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 think we're headed towards the apocalypse like you know them having some bow hunting skills could uh could come in handy at some point I might need them to to get dinner for me since I sure as hell ain't gonna be able to do it I you know what it's funny I actually forgot but we used to go to the civilian marksmanship course that it's like civilian, but the government would contract it out as in particular special operations units. This guy, Todd Hodnett is like on the forefront of um, advanced long range marksmanship stuff. But the training would take place in this place called like Canadian, Texas, like out with like the oil fracking fields and on West, West Texas, maybe West. Yeah. Like North, like Northwest Texas. If yeah. I'm remembering yeah. Like Amarillo was the closest town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the the actual best and most applicable training I ever did is every night we'd go out, put all our night vision shit on, and just go hogging because they're pests there. And yeah. it like if you're shooting a moving target at 800 meters in the middle of the night, it you know it helps when it's even smaller to refine your skill set. So. It was crazy. It was all new to me, and I didn't realize like the culture around hogging and hunting. And again, I honestly best training out there, and we actually ate what we shot, so it's not like we were being wasteful. And they were pests, so you know that's the kind of hunting I could definitely get behind. Scott, who's who's the better archer at this point, Caleb or Braden? Uh, I, they're pretty even right now, and you know yeah. they they've. They have very limited experience, so they're learning on the fly. But, like, you know, the, the first time they took it out of the package, they're like, first one to 100 wins. Right. You know, no encouragement on my part on the competitiveness. It's too late. The damage is done. They, they're just instantly ready to duke it out, you know. That's awesome. Wow. <laughs> uh, Steven, man, thanks for being on the show. Is there anything that we can do for you? How can we be helpful to, to you and your career and your your team and your journey and all that stuff uh one i apologize for not getting as tactical as you know i probably there's no apologies there's no fucking rules anymore <laughs> no agenda no rule, okay we're like, yeah yeah we're, we're we're days away from doing whatever we want you know you could day drink now you know in the middle of the week <laughs> as long as you're six feet away from everyone yeah i uh i look the only thing i'll say is if you are an SDR or an AE that wants to go and work for the kind of company that is, has really figured out something critically important, which to me is that, and this is why this podcast is so important. Like the world in which we operate in particular in SaaS and definitely in sales is just like, it's so challenging right now. There's sort of three forces that are conspiring against you. One, your product might be good and it might be better than your competitors, but it's really easy to rapidly innovate. So solution selling like doesn't work. Having the shiniest object 
doesn't work. Like, I'm trying to think of an example where I won't offend anyone, but I won't say it. But like, what's the difference between your platform and your competitors? Like, yours is red and theirs is blue. Like, but yeah. beyond that, like, <laughs> it's indistinguishable. There's feature function parity. Second of all, like, marketers have constantly shifted and adjusted their tactics, but whatever they're currently focused on, whether it's creating a content engine, whether it's using chatbots, whether it's doubling down on social, like all those channels are saturated and it rapidly becomes noise. And there's this expectation that salespeople are gonna take those efforts and engage in the world in a credible way in spite of the fact that no one fucking trusts you. And so, I'm excited that I ended up at a company where really all we do in our essence is connect your prospects and your customers or your developers to your other developers in order to drive business impact because people actually trust your customers and they don't trust you. So if you're an SDR, if you're an AE, if you've got massive upside, tangible track record of driving outsized performance, you're gritty, you're coachable, you're you know, someone who's got a growth mindset, hit me up. Um, Steven's hiring. I'm hiring. Yeah. Cause look, good. We're all, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're seeing it too, but um, I'm seeing every single day, loads of people losing their job right now in sales and everybody's asking me and asking Richard, who do you know who's hiring? So I absolutely will start steering people uh, your way. Yeah. And the last thing I'd say, like, I would just want to encourage people to think about skating to where the puck's going. Like, look, I, I don't, I probably butchered that quote, by the way. It's, I think Wayne Gretzky said it. And don't mistake what I'm saying. Because if the puck's in front of you, you got to hit it. If it's, you're in the midst of a pandemic, you got to acknowledge it. You got to call it out. You got to double down on empathy you got to be a lot less salesy and add a lot more value. And maybe your call to action isn't like you should look at the platform, but Hey, how can we dot, like double down and share best practices about what we're seeing across our customer base in terms of how they pivoted their business to deal with this challenge that we solved. I don't know, but I would just encourage people to pick their head up and start thinking about future proofing their business. And it's funny. Like I look at the zoom stock and the PE ratio is insane right now. And Zoom is unbelievably valuable right now. And I will also forever associate it with being forced to work from home. And the second this thing is over, the first thing I want to do is go like hug someone, you know, yeah. in a non-creepy, you know, social. And, ne and, ne and never use Zoom again. And probably never use Zoom again. Now, at least for a while. At least, yeah. And 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 like there is lessons to be learned. Like when you think about, like we drive both in-person and virtual community. I I think like when you think about big in-person events, I imagine companies are going to have a lot bigger aversion to doing large conferences because it's a massive investment, it's a massive risk. There's a lot of effort and it doesn't scale. So start thinking about like. If I'm trying to connect my customers to my prospects, is it better to do that in a lightweight, cheap way, like community, like Salesforce Trailblazers do, or is it better to do that 
by continuing to invest in these extremely expensive events that are the first to get canceled and you probably didn't have COVID insurance. I don't know. Or, or option C, you go to or, surf and sales. Or surf and sales. It's a very small group of people, right? Yep. A little vacation kind of thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe in some way the, this whole tragedy will, will help the, the rise of the micro sales conference like surf and sales. Yep. So I actually believe, and, and that's why I'm glad you brought this up. Surf and sales is the perfect, perfect example of what a great community focused conference looks like. It is a small intimate group where the focus is on collaboration, learning and sharing versus being talked to at a really snazzy venue where they like serve really shitty food. And <laughs> And I'm not, I can't testify to how great the food is. Hopefully uh, in September I could find out. It's, it, is, it is the single thing that consistently everybody says a 10 out of 10 every the, time. It's the thing they're the most surprised by. Is yes. what they say. Yeah. I'm really surprised the food was so good. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, we need to come. Like, yeah, we certainly I appreciate your, uh, your take on, on that and, and plugging us a little bit. We'd love to have you and anybody from your, your team or people that you know come once we get out of this, uh, this mess that we're in. Glad you're, glad sales contest once travels alone. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I'm glad you're uh, on the mend, man. You, you, you appreciate you sharing your story with us and being a little bit, you know, vulnerable and everything like that. Scary shit, but uh, inspiring, yeah. inspiring to see you still in good spirits as, as usual. Man. Thanks for the time today. Hey, thank you again. Really appreciate connecting and, and it's an honor and privilege to be on the podcast. Oh man. Wow. Thank you so much, Stephen. We'll talk to you again very soon. All right. See ya.